This is Tending Seeds, and I'm your host, Sarah, talking to you about homesteading, gardening, and herbalism. Hi, friends. I'm recording this intro on the summer solstice, looking out at the garden and just really loving life at the moment. This weather is absolutely amazing. We've gotten a ton of work done on the homestead recently, and we'll be sharing about that in an upcoming episode. We're also getting fun new summer herbal products listed in the Fox and Elder shop, including our summer solstice boxes, which we have just a few of left if you want to order one of those. Today, I have Natalie, the Alaska redhead, joining us on the podcast. I found her through a mutual friend and immediately knew I had to have her come on the show and talk to you guys. I'm so glad to have been able to strike up a friendship with her and convince her to come on and share her experiences with you all. Alaska is one of those homesteading destinations that has become more and more popular in recent years. We even considered it and still kind of wish we'd made it work. But there are some big challenges to think about if you're considering moving there. Natalie and I dive into those and she shares some of her challenges in living off grid in Alaska, as well as some of the really great things and also how she keeps herself busy during those long, dark winters. She has some great insights to share, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, Natalie, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I'm really excited to talk with you. I'm very excited to talk with you too. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you're our first Alaskan to come on the show. So I'm really excited about that. Um, In a previous episode, (laughs) um, Mike and I talked about the fact that we actually looked at some properties in Alaska and they just didn't really help for, you know, a variety of reasons. Um, The biggest one being access, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, today in the podcast, but can you tell us, uh, tell our audience a little bit kind of about yourself and sort of what got you into homesteading in the first place? Uh, yeah, glad to, um, you know, what's funny is that like, I had a penchant towards homesteading, like for most of my life, but like, I never actually had the courage to go and do it. It was one of those. And so the Alaska thing kind of started in 2016, 2015, um, out of an RV life experience. Um, my boyfriend, uh, Jason, who I've been with for 10 years, uh, we used to live in Oregon and, uh, we ended up going through a significant rental crisis. Uh, gentrification was getting really bad in the town that we lived in and we couldn't really afford the skyrocketing rents. So we kind of, moved everything that we had into a, a Chevy Suburban. <laughs> and uh, then we ended up trailing, uh, trading that out for a, uh, like a used pickup truck and a fifth wheel travel trailer. And we kind of did the RV life thing for about six months up and down the Oregon coast. And it was kind of not by choice, you know? <laughs> and so it's a little different that way than when like you set out to do it. And so we didn't really have a home of our own, uh, but Jason had always had a dream of having a home in the woods. That was like his dream. And he kind of got me into it too. Cause I'm like, wow, that's, you know what? That's a really good idea. <laughs> there are so many possibilities and I've never really identified with being kind of a suburban person. I'm a very quiet, introverted human being. And that appealed to me along with a life of self-sufficiency skills, bushcraft skills. I was very into that. And so we got a big surprise where his uh, grandmother who knew about his homestead dream wanted to give him his inheritance early, which is amazing. And he wanted to invest it in a uh, homestead. And so we were 
thrilled about this. This is not a typical situation that most people find themselves in. And right. so we felt we felt very fortunate. We're like, well, we better, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this right. So we've been talking about Alaska and we're like, let's just do it. So we got our passports. We drove the Alaska highway. We went through, you know, all that way and came all the way down to South Central Alaska and stayed at a campground, unhitched our trailer. And then we started driving around looking for property. So that's kind of how we got here. It was kind of complicated, but, and very unusual. Um, But that's kind of what got us here. And then, you know, from there, it was just find a property that suits what our needs are and our dreams are, which was more difficult than we thought. That's (laughs) amazing. So, and that's kind of what I was going to ask you is when you guys started looking for property, what were the criteria that you were specifically looking for as you started to evaluate different pieces? Oh boy. Well, I mean, Our first criteria definitely was water. Like that absolutely was first. Like there has to be some kind of a water source on the property, either moving water or a well. Uh, Because we didn't really want to have to install a well ourselves because it can be very expensive. And depending on where you are, the install may or may not be possible. And so water was definitely first priority. And then the second one was we didn't really want to be right on a road but we didn't want to be so buried in the woods that we couldn't get out or get anything in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so there's a lot of beautiful properties here that you have to take a boat or a float plane to. And we didn't, we didn't really want to do any of that. So um, that was next. And then obviously, you know, enough land to garden, build on, uh, be able to cut firewood for enough seasons. Cause that's, one of those things up here, it gets cold and you need to be able to cut enough wood to sustain yourself every year. And so if you don't have enough land, then you have a logistical problem where you need to get permits to go, you know, cut wood elsewhere, or you need to figure out a different method of heating instead of using wood. So all those things were very important. And so that was kind of our base criteria and as well as not being sandwiched between neighbors either, like just to have some space. If that's something that we could do, we wanted to try and do it. And uh, that was harder to look for than you think. (laughs) No, I completely can believe that because when we were looking at properties in Alaska, that access piece was definitely very difficult. And like you said, uh, needing either to boat in or take a plane in there's a piece of property we fall in love with where one of the things it boasted was its own airstrip (laughs) because that was the only way to get there pretty much 90 of the year, except for a snowmobile trail which you know so all of that requires a lot of additional equipment maintenance licensing you know so we started joking about let's just buy a plane because we obviously have the income to do that (laughs) not really (laughs) So the piece of land that you eventually got, what was that like? And how did that address the needs that you guys had starting this? Uh, Well, we, (laughs) I'm not going to lie. We definitely had a time crunch because we were trying to secure a place before winter um, because of our own deadlines. And just, you know, we wanted to make sure we were settled before all the snow and the freezing weather hit. And, Mm -hmm. Winter kind of starts around this part, you know, I'm in South Central Alaska. So it kind of starts about the first week of October. So we got here in the first week or so of June 
And so the clock was ticking from the moment we got here. And so we actually arrived at this property after we had been down on uh, the Kenai Peninsula for some time looking at property. And the trouble we were having there was uh, water issues <laughs> because there were a lot of people that were hauling water because their wells were bad um, from mm. iron contamination and lots of other things. And also uh, the natural gas industry had a little bit of a larger presence there than I was comfortable with. Not that I have a problem, you know, anybody that that's your job, that's your livelihood, you know, no disrespect, but, you know, fracking nearby kind of freaks me out when it comes to having a well. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, so there were a lot of reasons not to do it. And then I saw an ad for this place and we're, we're, um, we're significantly north of, of Anchorage, but we're south of uh, Denali National Park. And so it's in a nice area. And there were these little five acre plots, half mile off the main road, the little trail. And it's actually a two-story cabin, if you can believe it. It has a uh, two bedrooms upstairs, which shocked us for uh, what we paid for it. We were like, wow, this is amazing. And obviously it, it's off-grid. So there is no you know, power hookup to this place. And there is a well, which was great. We're like, yeah, that's awesome. And the other thing that it had that was a huge perk was that it had a stocked woodshed. <laughs> so you wouldn't have to nice. freak out about cutting wood before winter, which was a huge perk. So we're like, well, and it had a generator that was brand new purchased by the sellers, you know, so that they could, you know, boost the sale. And we're like, wow, okay, this one's batting eight out of 10. Cause I don't think you can ever really get 10 out of 10 when you're looking for a homestead, you kind of have to go, okay, it just has to have the basics and then can we live with it? And this one met most of my criteria. So then we put in an offer and it took a few months, but we got in here about seven days before the first snow. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, we cut it kind of close. <laughs> just in the nick of time. So in yeah. terms of access, I'm assuming then you have your own access. How close are you to the nearest town, for instance? Um, well, our nearest town is only three miles away um, down a maintained road. But the access thing, that's one of the things that kind of caught us off guard. Um, one thing that's really common, I've noticed after being here in Alaska, I've been here seven years. And one thing I've noticed, especially recently, since the market's been awfully hot here, a lot of people are interested in Alaska and moving here to off-grid homesteads. The realtors and the real estate companies, they really kind of don't give you enough information about the property that you really need if you're planning on living here year round, because it's a different commitment than like coming here for a vacation. Mm -hmm. So you need access, you need water, you need all these things, right? And so I find that there are people that buy properties and those properties have problems such as access. And the realtors are not very upfront about that. And then you end up feeling like, oh, no, no, I'm stuck with this place and I can't get in and out easily. And that sort of happened to us because the trail in and out hasn't been maintained in 30 years. <laughs> and so it um, it goes through a significant thawing and draining uh, process in spring and in fall. And if we get heavy rains that can impact how you can get things in and out, and you definitely cannot get a full-size vehicle up and down that trail. It mm -hmm. was strictly ATVs. And then in the winter, snowmobiles, because they don't plow it. Now, this is important information that you need if you don't have these vehicles when you come up here. Most definitely. I walked things in for a couple of years. And I'll tell you, <laughs> that gets old real fast. 
Yeah. So do you guys have an ATV or a snowmobile now, or how are you managing that? Yes, we eventually ended up getting an ATV through working for somebody and they cut us a deal, which was amazing. That's a lot of how you get things out here if you're not very well off in the finance department. (laughs) And our first snowmobile was a gift from my nearest neighbor. Bless her heart. I love my neighbor. She's amazing. (laughs) And it was a used snowmobile. She People in Alaska have like five or six of everything. If they've been here long enough, you just collect things, you accumulate. And so she was like, you guys are going to need this. And I don't want to see you go without it because I've had to pull sledfuls and wagonfuls of things up and down that trail. And I don't want to watch you guys go through that. And so that was a major blessing. And That's so, awesome. yeah, I, you know, neighbors can actually be a very valuable asset when you live this rural. We, we talk about that too on the podcast and we've been yeah. very fortunate to make friends with, with some neighbors here where we're willing to kind of put in the energy and, and work and they're willing to supply more of the equipment. And that's been really great as we get things started here and kind of trading off or going halvesies on equipment rentals and th- things like that. So I can't stress that enough. Um, so what is your community like there for you uh, now that you've kind of gotten more established since you've been there for about seven years? Uh, it's pretty good. Um, uh, my town is very small, very small population, just, you know, a few hundred, but, and forgive me that I don't like to give away my location. I'm sure oh, you understand. Fine. Um, but, uh, you don't have to live here long before everybody's trying to find out who you are. That's kind of how it is when you're new in a small town. Everybody's like, who's those new people? What, whose property do they have? Where, what road do they live off of? And who's their neighbor? And so you get plugged in faster than you, whether you want to or not. And we did because we understand the value of, of being, you know, in your community and sharing resources, which I think some people have this idea that they want to move to a a rural place and just kind of disappear from the world. And while I can understand the merit of that, and if that's what you want to do, go for it. There are going to be needs that you have that come up that you may not be equipped for that somebody else is. And then you help each other out. It's not really a dependency system as much as it is a, you know, a collaboration, you know, like a bartering system. And so, you know, we worked for a lot of people. We, we definitely have done our share of work helping neighbors, helping people in town, a guy that owns a store in my town. We've done a lot of work for him. And that's how we got a lot of important tools that we needed for the property. And of course, my neighbors are amazing. They're only five acres away from me or so. They have their own plot. Um, But, you know, you need anything from a a gallon of gas to a cup of sugar. They're there for you. (laughs) Yeah, that's so important. And So I know you said you're not very far from a town, but one of the things you talk about a lot uh, on your Instagram that I really enjoy is just talking about like food access too, which I think is something people don't think about when they think about Alaska is that it's really difficult. Prices are high. Availability is low sometimes even no matter what price you're willing to pay. So what has that journey been like for you adjusting from Oregon to Alaska Um, and really kind of fueling the need for that garden, for instance. (laughs) Well, it's, it's been kind of like going from one extreme to the other. When I lived in Eugene, I was literally around the block from my grocery store. And now I'm like 30 to 40 miles away from my grocery store. I mean, and the word town is a fairly loose term 
in rural Alaska. When we say town, lots of us mean, you know, the immediate town. And then we say go to town, which means mm -hmm. a bigger town. <laughs> so um, I, the grocery store that's closest to me is about 25 miles away. And uh, it's relatively small. It's not a Walmart or anything. If I wanted to go to Walmart, I'd have to go about 100 miles away mm -hmm. to go. And, you know, that's one way. So that would be round trip. That's a, that's far. And so I don't often have the resources for the gas to get out there and do that. So I have to make do with the smaller grocery store. Um, but yes, the prices are high here and that does get difficult. You have to change how you budget. You have to change how you write your list, how you create meals. Cause I do, I cook everything from scratch here. We don't eat out like hardly at all. Uh, it's very rare that we eat out, you know? And so with all the cooking that I do, what's important is to learn prepping skills, learn preservation skills. Um, I do the gardening while it doesn't supply as much food for us as I wish that it did. Um, hopefully I can get to that point one day. I'm just happy to have it because it does provide supplemental food. And so I feel like everything you can do to try to get more food into your home is good. And that's why I thought it was so important to learn preservation skills because I also have refrigeration problems on my property. Uh, and so learning how to pressure can food was really important. So I pressure can meat I put away extra things that I find on sale. If there's like some weird produce that like one time they had eggplant and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I take advantage of that uh, whenever I can. And it's just, you just kind of have to be adapt adaptable to what's going on. You know? Yeah. I remember your post about the eggplant and how <laughs> what unexpected <laughs> joy that was. And I, I can definitely understand that. So we're in a similar you're not, we're not quite as remote as you, but town for us is, you know, the nearest town, which does not have a grocery store. And then the next town over, so about 40-ish minutes from us has a small grocery store. But then if we want to go to, you know, a Walmart or a place with a bigger selection, it's about an hour from us. And so we definitely kind of get used to the, had to get used to the idea that like, there's no running out for like the thing you randomly forgot for dinner or something like that. Like you just have to learn how to make do. So, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> so you talked about refrigeration. Um, so do you have a fridge that works uh, all the time or is that sort of, you know, dependent on the generator or what are you guys using? Um, well, at first I had a propane fridge and propane okay. freezer that came with the house. But the problem with that was one, its consumption of propane was outrageous. We couldn't keep up with the the cost of the demand of fuel that it required. And it was kind of old. So sometimes the pilot would blow out during the night and then gas would start filling the house. Very scary. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So we ditched that and actually found a used veterinary freezer, about 350 watts, that we keep at a temperature between 34 and 40 degrees with a thermostat controller that has a little probe in mm -hmm. it. And so that can run off of our uh, power inverter, which goes to our solar panels. And so if we need a boost from the generator, we can do that too. Um, but that's kind of how I keep a fridge. And in winter, I have a fridge that sits on the porch that is my freezer, but I only get to have it about five months out of the year. <laughs> <laughs> we did that this winter too, with just a big Tupperware tote that we just threw out into the snow in the shade and had that for about <laughs> two, a couple months and that was really handy and, and saved us yep it's free it doesn't take any power you know the only thing you have to do is keep critters out of it you know and so <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yeah, that's very important. But yeah, refrigeration is tough when you live off grid because a lot of people don't take don't don't know what it takes to, you know, run that compressor. It asks mm-hmm. for a lot of juice to start up and a lot of people come out here and they have a big fridge and I'm like, how are you going to run that? Like the generator? And I'm like, right. are you going to run the generator all the time? <laughs> no, it's going to be a lot gas of fuel. For that. that adds up very quickly. Yeah, gas budget is very important because you are going to need it and it runs a lot of your systems. But we do have a, a more expanded solar array than we used to. We finally got two more 100 watt panels that go to our battery bank. And uh, that's really been changing life, especially sit in a place with 24 hours of light in the summer. It's very important to have solar in the summer. Definitely. Yes. Um, so in addition to like the outdoor <laughs> fridge slash freezer, uh, you mentioned canning, and then you also talk about fermentation. So where did you kind of start with those projects for yourself? Uh, well, the um, uh, water bath canning was out of interest. And the pressure canning was out of necessity. <laughs> the the pressure canning, uh, I learned how to pressure can meat. Uh, so mostly ground beef and chicken, which I had no idea you could do that. And then I learned how and went, wow, this is really valuable. You know, if I have no access to freezing or refrigeration or if I've got meat that's going to go bad. And so that's how that kind of evolved. And um, I do a lot of foraging. And in the summer, uh, I collect you know, flower blossoms, blueberries, and make jellies. And so that's the interest part. (laughs) And so I enjoyed doing that. And fermentation, I just always kind of like to play with that. I love fermented food. And like you said, when you can't go out to eat, or you can't spring for the thing that you forgot, you have to make it. And a lot of the foods that I miss from my very spoiled on-grid life that I took for granted, (laughs) I'm out to learn to make uh, here at home. So I've learned to make sauerkraut and pickles and sourdough starter. And it's been a a wonderful, wonderful thing because it just tastes so good and not to mention it's full of probiotics. So it's good for you. And uh, if you do it right and you do it safely, um, then it's it's an amazing thing to do. And I'm very much a safety Sue when it comes to, you know, food (laughs) preservation and foraging, like always know how you're doing it, what you're supposed to do, what temperature you're supposed to do it at and for how long. And when it comes to finding wild plants in these woods, always know what it is. I mean, hundred percent identification and sure. still be careful because we've been eating out of grocery stores for a long time. And you go back into the wild and try a wild plant, it may not affect you like you think it will. And so mm-hmm. I try to be very careful, but that's kind of how I do the food thing <laughs> up here. Yeah. And you've been on like a bread making journey as well. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It, it's you christen your Alaska cabin by baking bread in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I know you mentioned like the sourdough starter. Is that most of your bread making or do you branch out to other things? Um, I do branch out to other things. I bake a lot. I make bagels and pretzels mm. and just regular rolls. And it, normally it's just regular yeasted bread. Um, sourdough can be kind of tricky. It has a lot of, um, a lot of chemistry to it that you have to fine tune and get just right. Um, but once you get it right, it's, it's amazing. But most of my daily bread making is just regular active dry yeast. Awesome. Yeah. I think the sourdough starter for people, the whole daily feeding and maintenance can seem a little overwhelming at first. Yeah. It's like having a pet. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But for homesteaders, because we're so used to, you know, taking care of the garden and animals and everything else, it's just like one more thing in the rotation and like, you know, 
burping and the sauerkraut and everything else every day. So, oh yes. <laughs> um, do you have animals on your homestead? Um, not yet. Right now, just a dog. But um, mm -hmm. I've been working up to having uh chickens. Uh, okay. I haven't had them yet because I'm kind of a proponent of if you're going to do something, do it efficiently and be ready. Mm -hmm. And I haven't really been ready because just a lot of things have gotten in the way. And I live in the woods, so everything wants to eat chickens here. Everything. <laughs> we have birds of prey, foxes, coyotes, wolves, right. bears, ermines, a little weasel, little arctic weasel. And so you really have to do that chicken pen correctly to where nothing can get in there and they can stay safe. And I haven't really had the resources to do that just yet, but it is on my list. That yeah. is definitely something I want to do is have some dinosaurs <laughs> yeah it's a lot we ended up rehoming our chickens because we also we moved out here right before the start of winter um as well and so that was a concern was you know predators as well as just heat you know through the winter absolutely um, we can get negative temperatures so we're we have some building ahead of us before we get a flock again out here but um i feel you uh, that keeping the water <laughs> from freezing and keeping them warm that's huge here because there are a lot of yes. people that have livestock and they want, they have big ambitions here. And then that gets thwarted by how cold and intense our winters can be. That is really the wild card here is that a lot of people are not quite prepared for just how different our winters are. Uh, a lot of people come here that have seen winter, mm -hmm. you know, like from the Midwest or even Canada, right. you know, but we have six months of winter guaranteed winterish weather. And I've been through some deep cold here. I've had a brush with hypothermia a couple of times, you know, it'll get you if you're not prepared. And so if you're going to have animals, yes, definitely. You have to absolutely be ready to take care of them and make sure they survive because it's a hard place to live. It really is it's beautiful, but it's a harsh place. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot, even just for just people, even if you're not taking care of animals and yes. <laughs> There's been a lot of interest in Alaska in the homesteading communities over the recent years. So for anyone out there that's maybe wanting to or thinking about moving to Alaska to, to homestead, um, other than maybe some of the considerations that you mentioned for property, what are some of the other things you would advise them to be aware of before they make the leap? Oh, boy. Well, the biggest one is is kind of not always something that people can do, but if you can please don't buy sight unseen property here. <laughs> that means don't buy property unless you can have a look at it or have somebody have a look at it for you. Now, I know that's financially not possible for some people um, and that's its own problem, but it's really easy to just go, oh, that looks perfect and buy mm -hmm. it and then come here and realize that not only is it not perfect, it has way more problems than you knew because no one told you. And so that's something I've seen people go through time and time again here. If there's any way you can get, you know, away for a, a week or something just to visit a piece of property to be sure or have a realtor walk it and show you on a phone or just any mm -hmm. way that you can get a look at it. Like that's, that's really important. There's a lot of bad land here for sale. <laughs> it's not good for homesteading. It's good land. It's just not ideal for homesteading like if it's a swampy area you dig a hole it fills with water well that's going to be a hard thing if you want to make a garden you know right. or if like the access is bad lots of times a dirt road looks like you can drive in all year round but you can't and so mm -hmm. there's a lot of things like that to to you know to make sure that you research beforehand and the other things i'd say is 
read and familiarize yourself on what it means to live in a very cold place because it's very cold here and it can be very tough, especially when it gets really dark in the uh, kind of midwinter. We have about a five hour day of minimal light and that can be very emotionally and psychologically trying. Mm-hmm. And you have to be prepared to go, okay, well, what am I going to do to get through that? I'm going to stay fit. I'm going to have activities, you know, and t- be able to take care of your mental health and to take care of your physical health. Because when you live in o- an off-grid life in Alaska, it's very physically and psychologically challenging. So you kind of have to be making sure that you you know how you're going to take care of yourself so that you can stay strong and do what you need to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't recommend doing it alone if it's your first time, that's for sure, because you're going to need help at some point. And I guess I'd also say, um, make sure that you think about if you are going to need to have mechanical skills to fix your own things, you're kind of your own rescue service and your own first responder here. And so having the ability to fix things is really important. Having the ability to uh, take care of emergencies that's another reason why the access is such a big deal it's not just a much you know so much about getting things in and getting things out of your property if you need to leave your property like right now for a a fire uh you know like a, a forest fire or an emergency you need to think about that that's really important and then make sure it has water a lot of people buy property and then they're hauling water into their property and you may or may not want to do that forever mm-hmm. and so I guess those are the biggest things for me. And then also, you know, neighbors are not a bad thing. There is such a thing as isolated. You know, it can, it can be really hard. And when you have a support circle around you, it's not necessarily that they're holding your hand, but they're there if you need them and you're there if they need you. It's a, it's a a partnership and it's, it's really beneficial because, you know, you live, when you live in a city, you don't really know your neighbors very much. Everybody kind of has an anonymity. Well, you don't really have that in a rural area. Everybody gets really close, kind of whether you like it or not, but I do. Yeah, no, it's a good thing. And, you know, I think we also need to think about most of us, you know, we might be, you know, in our 20s, 30s, 40s, etc. when we start homesteading, but what are you going to do when you're in your 60s and 70s? Like having those neighbors that you can count on in an emergency is really nice to know that there's someone out there that you can reach out to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And making sure that you think about, you know, things that you can do to make your homestead more efficient, not so much just in power, but in labor because of that very thing that you mentioned is Mm -hmm. because, you know, we're not all spring chickens forever. You know, there's plenty of things that I do very differently now that I couldn't in the beginning. And I've been through back injuries and lots of things that were out of having to lift the thing instead of being able to move it with a vehicle. So as many things as you can do to prepare yourself for that. Those are, those are wonderful things. Like a wood splitter is great. I know they're pricey, but you know, I know how to split wood with them all. I can do that. I like to do that, but it is also nice to have a wood splitter for when you need to do something quickly and you need, you know, or somebody has an injury and you need to do things for them and you're not capable of doing that thing physically. So yeah, it's important to think about all those things. Yeah, that's a great point. And energy saving devices. Very nice. Especially if yeah. you have a lot on your to-do list, which most homesteaders do. So the, the list never ends. It, it's just, <laughs> it gets bigger every year, no matter what you do. Exactly. <laughs> 
Um, you mentioned getting through the long winters there. And so I'd love to talk about kind of how you have handled, you know, you've made it through seven winters now. Um, what are the things that you do to keep yourself going through the winters and maybe talk about your crocheting? Cause I know you kind of did some awesome stuff with that in the past year. Oh man. Well, crafting is definitely a huge way that you can get through the winter because it can get very boring and you don't always want to be outside. Um, it is good to get outside to get you know, to see the sun, even if there's not very much of it to keep your circadian rhythm healthy because mm -hmm. your sleep patterns can get really disrupted, which can contribute to things like seasonal affective disorder, which you can get really badly up here because of the low light. It can really affect you. And so also staying occupied with things that are enjoyable to you is definitely huge. Learning new skills, like that's the perfect time to do it. And that's what people used to do in the long winters. That's when people would craft and you know, spend time together as a family and learn new skills. And, and that's very important. Uh, playing music. I have instruments. I play guitar. I play piano, a little piano, mostly guitar, but a little bit of piano. I dabble. And, um, and the crochet thing came out of that same thing. Uh, my mother sent me a box of crochet hooks and some yarn and a couple of books my first winter. And back then I didn't have a phone. I was phoneless and I had no internet. We had a little bit of internet on Jason's phone, but that was pretty much it. So it was down to us to entertain ourselves. And so I couldn't look up YouTube tutorials on how to crochet or right. anything. I learned it from books and just doing it. And after a few years, my style migrated towards retro because that's something I've always you know, been into. In my youth, I was very into music and I had a radio show for a while and an internet station that where I played 60s, 70s vintage music. And I'm just kind of into that. And um, my friends at the time had a nickname for me, which was Penny Lane. <laughs> it's kind of a, a longstanding nickname for me. Uh, but uh, that's what I ended up calling the business. And it's been through some phases, but its latest phase is the one I'm the most happy with because now I feel like I've kind of come into my own. I like my style. I'm writing patterns now, which is really exciting. I never thought I'd be doing that. It's like writing yeah. procedures. Yeah, you very just wrote technical. your first pattern, right? This past one. I did. I did uh, awesome. for a cardigan. And it's thank you. And it's an it's inspired by a cardigan that was uh created in the 60s for Eric Clapton. And I mm -hmm. it was a long time to figure out how to kind of reverse engineer it and how to even write the pattern for size inclusivity, which is a big deal if you're a crocheter. Uh, right. a crochet designer is to make sure that everybody can can wear it that's a very big deal um but yeah it's been a long journey with crochet uh it was a lot of making pieces i liked making pieces i didn't like making mistakes a lot of mistakes <laughs> but it's a very forgiving medium because you can pull out your stitches if you don't like what you did <laughs> which not really that way with fabric i'm not very good at sewing <laughs> and working with fabric. So crochet is a little easier if you're just experimenting with things, but being able to create your own clothing, like heck yeah. And I used to make scarves for neighbors. I still do um, headbands, things to keep you warm, which is actually what I first started making <laughs> for the winter. <laughs> yeah. Useful for sure. Absolutely. That's awesome. Thank you. Well Natalie, it sounds like you have a really awesome life going on and it's just is getting better year after year as you kind of settle into your homestead with your partner and that you're really kind of dialing everything in, which is is super awesome. And I think you've shared some really good advice for people who are maybe considering 
moving to Alaska either permanently or even getting like a, a second, you know, cabin place to go visit in the summers or anything like that. Um, I just want to thank you for coming on the show today. It's been really awesome to have you. And uh, Natalie, for the listeners, also recently started blogging, which is, you know, blogging is kind of like making a comeback. It used to be like huge and then kind of fell off for a while, but long form stuff is finally making a comeback, which I'm super excited about because I love blogs. Um, we'll have all that linked up in the show notes, as well as her Etsy store, if you want to check out her crochet patterns. Um, and also, of course, her Instagram is great to follow as well. So Natalie, any last things you want to share about what you're up to before we sign off? Um, I thank you again for having me on the show. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, I guess uh, the only thing I have left to say is that, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, make the leap, just look before you leap. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's really good advice. And maybe from Natalie and I both don't move right before winter if you can help it. Yeah, try not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it can be done. But yeah, try to move in a good season. definitely Definitely. all right thank you so much natalie thank you sarah i really appreciate it all right thank you again natalie so much for coming on the show it really has been a blast getting to know her and you should definitely go give her a follow as well over on instagram you can find her at alaska.redhead and we'll have that in the show notes she also has a couple other really fun instagram accounts too including natalie's off-grid kitchen I hope everyone is doing really well out there and that your seedlings are healthy and happy. This is such a fun, but also very busy time of year. So make sure to pace yourself. You can find me on social media as Fox and Elder, or go ahead and check out our herbal products over at foxandelder.com. Be good to each other. Until next time, keep your hands dirty and your heart open.